Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. Today, I am excited to have Wayne Deacon on the podcast to discuss his new book, Modern Language, Philosophy and Criticism, just published by Paul Grave Macmillan in summer 2023. Modern Language, Philosophy and Criticism serves all the various ways um, we have tried to make sense of literary texts from the earliest Greek poetic theories of antiquity up to contemporary anti-critique polemics. Wayne Deacon is professor of English at Chiang Mai University and is the author of the 2015 book, Hegel and the English Romantic Tradition, also from Paul Grave Macmillan. Wayne's scholarship has explored commodity fetishism in Thailand, the writings of Coleridge, George Bataille and Wordsworth, and post-colonialism. Welcome to the podcast, Wayne. Thank you, John. Good to be here. I propose that all literary critics have a moment uh, in their personal history when they discover literary theory or literary criticism, an essay or a class or a conversation that sparks uh, their imagination, that seems to break open the horizon of their thinking. Part of the allure of literary theory is that it promises to finally lead us out of the cave in Plato's allegory. What was that moment for you? A uh, good question, John. I think for me, I, as an undergraduate, I studied English and philosophy as a joint degree. And it's interesting that in some ways it was studying romanticism itself, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Blake, and at the same time studying stuff like Descartes and Kant and the sort of subject-object distinction. Um, and then studying Hegel and his sort of communitarian theory of recognition, that social theory of recognition, German idealism, again, the relationship between the mind and nature. And it sort of all came together for me, really studying romanticism and epistemology. In terms of literary criticism itself, um, I think for my generation of scholars, deconstruction was a big one. Um, And stuff like Paul DeMann in particular, who seems to be able to fuse philosophy and literary theory and close reading and rhetorical readings together. So I think Paul DeMann was a big one. If there was one thing in particular, I'd probably say Roland Barthes, The Death of an Author, stood out as an essay as well, because again, it makes you think about subjectivity, agency, and our relationship with textuality. So I think Roland Barthes, Death of an Author, in terms of a specific essay, and probably demands rhetoric of romanticism, which is just a brilliant essay. And again, picks upon epistemological ideas of subject-object distinction and how that has been carried in literature in the rhetoric of romanticism, essentially. Roland Barth, uh, amazing critic, of course. Paul, Paul DeMant, I know neither of those are hot takes, you know, but but amazing writers still and hold up. Amazing writers and very and very readable, and they still hold up very well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Stephen Greenblatt was somebody for me, you know, the new historicist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I haven't read much Greenblatt. I've got some of his stuff. I have read some. Yeah. See again, it might be a. We've I, 
new historicism was just becoming popular in the mid-90s when I did my undergraduate. But post-structuralism and deconstruction were still very popular in the Western Academy. So I haven't read as much Greenblatt, but I've got some of his books on my shelf. So I guess I'm heading in that direction. I mean, they're all great uh, gateway, gateway drugs. Um, maybe that or doesn't hold up, but, you know, they're they're great portals into the wider world theory, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's different for everyone. But as you correctly say, there's always an essay or a writer or a text that really kind of lights you up. And like I said, for me, it was more generally studying epistemology and romanticism. I kind of made this link myself, which led to my first book. But yeah, in particular, Roland Barthes, as I said, because it was clear as well. It was clear, concise. It's quite beautifully written as well. And it seemed to sum up a lot of the stuff that I was kind of people were talking about at the time. And I think still are to a degree, actually. So, yeah. So uh, this book, um, Modern Language, Philosophy and Criticism, uh, traces the genealogy of literary criticism. Um, how do you think this history from Aristotle to the present moment can or should inform the ways we read and write about literary texts in 2023? Well, one of the themes of the book is, as you just said, looking at this, uh, there's a sort of potted history um, going from the Greeks to the medieval times and then into the modern. Uh, and I think it, it's interesting. I think one of the things I can't, one of the points I make is that critical reading right now has become, I call it political pathologies, where essentially people approach text with either a, a post-colonial thing in mind or queer theory or feminism, which is all very good, of course. Um, but sometimes those readings need to be problematized because they can't, if you come to the text with these reading glasses, I think sometimes you forget to be as, as objective as you might be. If you go back to medieval criticism, and I make this point in the book as well, um, that sort of medieval criticism was informed by... Uh, by the, the sort of new Christianity um, and the attitude that people saw in these texts towards God. And if they were seen as pagan, for example, and they didn't fit that particular political, um, political sort of theological standpoint, they were often rejected or criticised or they were put in parenthesis and the reader was reminded or the scholar would have was reminded that these were quite heretical, but, you know, you could possibly fit them into a Christian framework. And I find that idea interesting of political pathologies, because I think that's still going on today. Um, people often, like I said, they come to it with a certain framework, a certain preconceived idea. And sometimes I think that can limit readings. I think one of the great things about deconstruction, for all it's been criticised, was the fact that it did open up readings and remind us that there were a number of readings we could take from a text. And we didn't really have to straight jacket ourselves when reading the text. And of course, having a historical awareness of reading makes is important. It, it brings that home. I mentioned um, F.R. Levis and Achebe in, in the book, and that's part of my point, that you have these different readings of Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And I think it's interesting, and it's but it's good to remember sort of going back to Greenblatt, I guess, this sort of historicist perspective. And I would like to return personally to a more sort of, you know, rhetorical reading of texts as opposed to just political. And it's, this again, this is not to denigrate the political or they're not mutually exclusive, but I think we've often forgotten 
the art of literary criticism is also about the rhetorical skill employed within the text itself. And I think having an awareness of history and the history of criticism, uh, you know, makes us more attuned to that and can help us as readers. You acknowledge throughout the book that academic and geographic context were important in the writing of this book. You teach at Chiang Mai University, a public research university in Northern Thailand. You wrote this while teaching an annual undergraduate course in literary theory, which I can say we've had some students in common that uh, your undergraduate survey on literary theory is a big hit among students. Um, a, a lot of students are have that kind of um, gateway experience in your class. Um, many of the examples come from a range of contexts in the book, uh, including Thai, uh, British, U.S. Um, pop culture. How does this intercultural dialogue shape uh, modern language philosophy and criticism in your book? Uh, well, I think in terms of my book, I mean, the obvious answer is the fact that I've been living in Thailand for 21 years now. So, it you know, you can't help but feel some influence from that, first of all. So that's part of the intercultural locus and the influence. Um, and I think it's important to sort of look at texts, you know, from different cultures. I mentioned David Damrosh's work on world literatures and stuff. I think we can often become... While I'm I'm against the denigration of the Western canon and the politically correct um, ramifications of that, I am also aware of the idea that we shouldn't become too Western-centric, uh, Anglo-centric is perhaps a better term, and we need to look at other sort of cultures and other literary explorations as well. But it, it informs the book in the main because of my background here, and also because of these discussions, you mentioned a literary criticism class, John, that I've had with students here, where we've brought up texts like A Young Man's Fancy, The Circus of Life, uh, or Red Bamboo. And we found that when we were talking about, say, structuralism or archetypal criticism, it's great to talk about these texts because you find those structures repeated. And as you know, one of the major aspects of structuralism is the repetition of structure. Um, and how we see that repeated in different texts. So I think as literary critics, it's good for us anyway to be able to look at texts from different cultures and, and make those connections and join the dots. So that's a big part of it as well, finding those archetypes, uh, those structures in different texts. And also, of course, it's just interesting politically. I mean, I picked Red Bamboo because it was a text um, essentially, it was an anti-communist text, and it's interesting to discuss in terms of the wider cultural history of Thailand, its relationship with America, you know, with Chip Pumisap, one of the Thai radicals who was executed in '63. It just gives you a whole different perspective, going back to historicism, um, in which to read different texts. And it's interesting to use theory and, and criticism in that way as well. I think they're instruments that can be very interesting and, of course, comparative literature. So you you can make some very good um, comparative literary analysis if you use these tools. So that's how it's kind of worked for me. Yeah. Which um, which schools of literary criticism do you find your students in uh, Chiang Mai responding especially well to? Which schools of criticism do, do they kind of resist or... Well, it's interesting you say responding to, because one of them is reader response. Um, 
because obviously it democratizes a text and it, it, it puts the onus on the reader. One aspect of reader response, well, sort of phenomenological reader response hermeneutics to slightly different categories, but one interesting aspect is the fact that it puts a lot of the reading experience onto the cultural aspect, i.e. if you're reading a book such as Red Bamboo again, are you reading it, do you sit on the subway every day in New York or do you live in Isam um, in Thailand? It's going to give you different readings of the text. So that's one of the interesting ones, broadly speaking, reader response. You, know, you probably know Norman Holland's famous book, Five Readers Reading, where it talks about different cultural aspects that inform our reading of text. And another interesting one, I think, is, um, although it's very difficult, is uh, post-structuralism because of the way it opens texts up and gets us to question the authority of the teacher, essentially, because one of the big sort of, I think, pseudo-heuristic aspects of, of the system over here in terms of education, the pedagogy, is that um, students aren't always encouraged to ask that many questions. And obviously, things like deconstruction, they also encourage you to ask questions. And then the last one, which is also the last two, other political ones, so Marxism and feminism. Um, obviously, you've got female, the, the classes are predominantly female, so they find some of the feminist arguments very, very interesting as well and very relevant to their lives. And, yeah, given the recent politics, the Marxism stuff is interesting, and not only the recent stuff, John, but the, the, the history of Thailand and its relationship with the West and stuff. So... Yeah, I would say read a response, um, deconstruction, when it's watered down and made as simple as possible, it's difficult, um, Marxism and feminism. And, and post-colonialism, I suppose, which makes sense as well. You know, colonial approaches to literature and approaches to the canon and how we justify the canon is obviously very interesting for Thai students as well. So, yeah, so there's probably thinking about it quite a few aspects of the course <laughs> there are two things i traced throughout this book that i want to discuss first is the long-standing tension in literary criticism between professionalization that is like producing articles and books and kind of uh, being facing a, a professoriate and and gaining legitimacy in that Kind of community and amateurism or you mentioned this sort of um democratization that reader response theory is associated with the fact that any reader can have a legitimate reading of a text how do we judge the quality of a reading whether it is formalist feminist or a, a post-colonial reading and are there measurable objective criteria what what is the role of the person of critic. Great question, that is. Um, I think depends on your approach to criticism. So, for example, if you go back to the sort of Anglo-American new criticism, um, and if you go back to the the contemporary, at the time, formalism, such as Shaklovsky's 1917 Artist Technique, what you find is if you use those standards to measure they still democratize the, the text because as a class, you can almost give students a kind of checklist and say, look, do you find paradox? Do you find tension? Do you find irony, ambiguity, antithesis? And how do they work? So one interesting thing, I think, and I think that's part of the, not the aims of the book, but I think one of the streams or currents of the book is that 
is maybe wondering whether there should be a return to this sort of analysis um, that does democratize the text because it means wherever you're from, you've got a certain objective formula um, or yardsticks that you can use to manage the, the quality of the text. And again, going back to the idea of political criticism, I think sometimes political criticism can be more sociological criticism. You know, I think there's a big difference between looking at a text in terms of a piece of sociology and representing society at the time and then doing proper literary analysis. Um, and so I think there's a kind of fine line there. With regards to the thing about amateurism versus professional, I, you know, John, I, 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 it makes me wonder whether there is even that line there. I mean, one of the things I'm talking about in the book is returning to reading just for, as Barth called it, the jouissance of the text, the, the pleasure of the text itself, as opposed to overlaying it with, with, with too much political stuff. And again, I have to emphasise, this is not denigrating political criticism. I've used that myself. I've taught it myself. I just find that we've maybe perhaps gone too far that way and we've almost forgotten how to enjoy the text. Let me give you an example. I was at a conference a number of years ago and most of the presentations were on post-colonial theory and a lot of them, they would, they would take a text and they would say, well, this is good because it's got hybridity and talk about Harmi K. Baba's brilliant view of hybridity. And I raise a question, what about taking a formalist approach? Are we forgetting... I mean, are we saying the text is of a certain quality because it ticks a certain political formula? And are we doing that at the risk of forgetting what our, what our duty is as critics, that we should be looking at the quality of a text, whether we agree with the politics or not? So that's one of the problems I've had in recent years. And then in terms of amateurish readings, as you say, I, I, I really don't think there's that much of a difference because often people reading text We've sort of, without any of these blinkers on, can sometimes surprise the teacher or the critic with the freshness of their readings because they're not engaging with these sort of glass, you know, these technical glasses on. They're just going into it. And, you, and sometimes it's happened to me and I go, wow, I've, I've kind of forgotten about that. So, I, yeah, I, there's a, there's a, I won't go into it too much, but Richard Royce, he wrote an essay called The Philosopher as Expert. And I think that's the question. What is it that makes you an expert? And what is it that makes you a philosopher? And can we all be philosophers and self? I think the same for literary criticism. And I think ultimately, I think we can all be critics. Um, I think there's a certain, there's just higher standards of appreciation, as Jonathan Culler made clear, that if you're, you can read the structures of text if you have a certain background and you'll pick up a lot more from the text. But there's also a danger, if in a way, if you have too much background of also missing stuff in the text. Do you see what I mean? So we can kind of go both ways. So I'd like to problematize that barrier in some ways between the sort of professional critic and the amateur. But of course, still encourage a certain degree of literary criticism because that's what my book is. So... I think it's important to remember that as well. That's great. And I love the emphasis you're putting on pleasure as enjoy, play as as fundamental to literature. And I, I've been reading some Jonathan Kramnik and, and one of the things he talks about is um, there are these the kind of hard skills in literary criticism as well, like weaving in 
quotes, leaving, weaving in quotations uh, from a text into your argument that are a part of the training, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Methodology in the training, yes. Um, establishing heuristics, you know, establishing like how much information do you need to know about um, the history of Milton criticism before you can say something, you know, about, you know, about Paradise Lost in a scholarly context. Um, yeah, uh, excellent. Um, the second line in your book um, that, I, that I was interested in discussing is the politics of reading. You talk about the avowed uh, political indifference of F.R. Levis and the avowed political uh, reading of a post-colonial critic like Chinue Achebe. Uh, you talk about the democratic nature of the seminar classroom, which I think, you know, we're using the term democratic, so so that is political by nature. Where presumably every student, along with a teacher, can approach a novel or a poem and reveal something about it. How do you think about this relationship uh, between politics and literary criticism? Well, again, that, that sort of feeds into what I've already said. But to expand upon it, I yesterday I was reading an essay from the New Yorker in 1995. Can't remember the name of the author. It was a magnificent piece of writing, and he he had been a student at Columbia. And in his graduate class, the final book they looked at was Heart of Darkness. And he was exploring all of the stuff that had come out of the different readings and people with different cultural backgrounds, etc. Just what we were talking about. And his argument was very similar to mine. He was saying there's a big, he was saying we can't forget the political side, of course. And you can't, you've got to remember that as an Afro-American or someone from a Hispanic background, they're going to have a certain reading of the text. That's really the response. But again, his argument was the, the danger of over-politicizing text to the point whereby the canon comes under threat because, for want of a better term, because of political correctness. And he, he, he kind of didn't spell that out in as many terms, but I think the insinuation was there's a certain danger in that and we should just be able to go back to the text themselves and read them, which is, of course, what new criticism was about. So there's a, there's a place for all of this. And literary criticism has to have the political elements because there is, I mean, I'm really interested in Marx and Engels, and there is something political about text. We, we can't forget that, and we forget it at our peril. But I think we should also bear in mind the pleasure of the text and the critical beauty of text. <clears throat> is, you know, we can look at them in that way, and then we can look at them in you know, more sociological ways, maybe anthropological analysis as well. Um, and there's a sort of fine line. Um, so I think that's a big thing. Again, democratisation in the classroom, which is really an aspect of new criticism, I think is important because going back to Heart of Darkness, if it's taught in the correct way, it can open up all of these debates. And obviously the debates they had were amazing. <laughs> Produced a great essay as well in New Yorker. But Again, at our peril, I think we have to remember that we need to remember it's literary criticism. I think Terry Eagleton made this point as well, that often we have forgotten the fact that we need to be focusing on the rhetoric of the text. And we and Paul demands this really well, I think, as you know. It, you know, it takes us back to the rhetoric of the text. And then, can, and then you can still ask interesting philosophical and political questions, sort of meta-questions in a way. So... <clears throat> It's all part of an ongoing process, really. Um, I just worry about the idea of um, 
politicization of text reaching such a point. My fear is that certain texts, number one, won't get taught anymore, or number two, people will be f- afraid of speaking up in class about them because they'll be worried about offending someone. So I think we can democratize the class and the text, but I've that cuts everywhere. Of course, that means everyone's got to have a voice and has got to be able to come to the text with this critical prism. And we need to be open to that. Um, so that's kind of my worry about the future, really, of criticism, which, again, John, is why I was talking about trying to go back to the kind of roots of criticism, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm also hearing, like, a value placed on care, you know, care for the text, care for um, between students, you know, and yeah, yeah, you know, as part of the experiment in democracy that the classroom is, you know, absolutely, yeah. that process of concession and dialogue. Yeah, well, I, I wrote another paper um, a number of years ago, um, sort of about that called ethical agency and the global community a phenomenological approach to reading and i sort of made that point that some of the beauty the beauty in literature is that it does open without it being politicized let me give you an example i read maya angelo's i know why the caged bird sings when i was i think i was about 20 21 and it it blew me away And, and what blew me away about it was the uh the the insight into Arkansas back then and the experience of Black Americans and how it was so beautifully represented. And I sort of, a prior, I had an emotional reaction to it. It was amazing. And it it wasn't because, obviously, I studied post-colonial theory or anything. It was just this text just opened up that world to me and made me question myself intuitively. And, yeah, I think care, care for the text and care for the reader. I think if we try to straightjacket them too much... Uh, we can be in danger of taking away from the reading experience. And if it becomes purely analytical, we, we kind of do lose that kind of care. Um, and I think it's important not to. So I think texts themselves as good literature, they will open us up anyway, I think, to political questions, ethnographic questions, phenomenological, psychological analysis. They just do of their own boot. I mean, when I studied Romanticism as an undergrad, we didn't do post-colonial theory or deconstruction. I did that for my master's degree. But, it, you know, it was emotional for me. It made me think critically. As I said, it brought me back thinking about epistemology, Cartesian metaphysics, Pantheonism, Hegelianism. And it seemed, for me personally, these things just worked of their own accord. Um, and I didn't need to you know i did need to put these reading glasses on to have this reaction which inform who i am really and i think that's the beauty of literature it makes us remember this is the key that we are part of a global community and i think literature opens that up to all of us and it just reminds us that we are part of a global community it teaches us empathy and i think that's what's important and and it worries me that we we don't want to take away that aspect of reading text, if you like. It's almost, you might say, it's like a sort of virginal um, aspect to reading text. And we, I don't think we want to lose that. I think we lose that at our peril. Your book um, offers an accessible and thoughtful exploration of deconstruction. What was deconstruction? Um, and how did the literary theorist Paul DeMann 
applied deconstruction to U.S. pop culture. You, you reference um, a, a famous essay he wrote about Archie Bunker. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll go back to that. Well, deconstruction, first of all, this, again, is a great theory, often using correctly. I mean, one of the ironies about deconstruction is people often say, well, I've deconstructed a text. Um, and they're basically saying, I've analysed it and reread it. Deconstruction itself, of course, is about the structure of language. It's based on it's based on Heideggerian phenomenology and Saussurean linguistics, and it's a combination of the two. Um, and what it does itself, Derrida's argument, is that texts deconstruct themselves by the very nature of language and, and, and phenomena and consciousness. Um, so I think the text that deconstruction is often used incorrectly. I mean, it's an amalgamation of destruction and construction and saying that these two kind of inform each other. Um, and again, I think when we're reading naturally, Things the text does deconstruct itself because we think about the aspects of the writer, our position of going back to Maya Angelou, Maya Angelou's position, the positionality of characters, the, the position of myself as a young 20 year old white reader in, in, in Wolverhampton bus station. All of these things are opened up by the text anyway. Deconstru the danger with deconstruction is it's sort of been used in some respects politically more recently, incorrectly, I think, to marginalise people with dissenting views. And that's a massive mistake, because Derrida's point was that you, you could create violent hierarchies, so you don't replace a hierarchy with another. The point was in deconstruction, was to keep remembering that the text is always open, is always malleable, is changing under our eyes, and that there are these different subject positions. And to assume one over a series of others was incorrect, just like it was incorrect to assume one of these others had the privileged position that, that to me was the beauty of deconstruction um and also I, I like to note in the book of course i talk a lot about analytic philosophy because i think in philosophy as well there's been a false opposition between the analytic tradition ordinary language speech act theory and deconstruction and one of the things i've tried to point out within the limited space of the book is how these different theories sort of approach the same phenomena, language, from slightly different viewpoints, but come to similar conclusions. Um, I think it's important to note that. With regards to Paul DeMann, well, Paul DeMann, most of his stuff was, a, is, as you obviously know, was he was written about philosophers, poets. So in terms of popular culture, the, 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 the thing I picked up was the Archie Bunker text, which is quite amusing about tying the shoelaces. Um, I wanna, and then I kind of use it for Thai culture as well, similar ideas. And I analyze Thai soap operas, which are called Nam Nao dramas. So this aspect of popular culture, and you can apply this to America and the UK, of course, and the idea that there are certain ideologies or standards or archetypes that inha in inhabit these, these different soap operas and stuff. And that... Um, we can be made more aware of that. So just very briefly, in Thai soap operas, they're called Nam Nam dramas, and you have a Nan Rai and a Nan Ek character, and one of the females is sort of virginal, abstemious, and just very, very good, almost a Cinderella character. And then the girl who is out for, you know, is, is sick, who wants some sort of revenge or wants to plot or wants to smoke, who wants to drink, who wants to have um, a more sexually liberated lifestyle, is usually portrayed as being an archetypal kind of witch, really. So using 
not necessarily just pulled in mind, but deconstruction in general is very interesting. Again, you're looking at how these texts, such as soap programs, can deconstruct themselves and how, again, given let's if you take a feminist reading for example the the character who is kind of rebelling fighting against the system plotting if you like um could actually be seen as a heroic character from that perspective because she's trying to give a voice to women who have been oppressed within the patriarchy so that's how i think not so much just paul demand paul demand stuff is about because obviously he's talking about language and the idea of, of logic and rhetoric and grammar. Um, but broadly speaking, the, the theory of deconstruction, how it gets us to think about these things in popular culture in very different ways and come to very different conclusions. That's how it interests me. <clears throat> Chapter six looks at different responses to Hegelian approaches to social and communitarian accounts of language. Can you take us through the role of acknowledgement? That's a key word. Yeah. In the practice of reading. Sure. Sort of, in some respects, it connects back to what I said about a global community. I think to have a global community, acknowledgement is from Stanley Cavell, um, but it's essentially it's a Hegelian idea based upon what Hegel called anerkennung, which is mutual recognition in English. And it's the idea that we can mutually recognize each other through these sort of intersubjective experiences that Hegel writes about. And that can expand to community and to a, a, a truly democratic polity, whereby we see people in their own right, and by doing that, we see ourselves better. Now, if we think about that in terms of the reading experience, let's go back to the Maya Angelou thing I talked about. I mean, what it does is it opens you up as a reader, and again, like I say, it makes you think about yourself as a reader, your sort of subject position, the history that you're involved with. And then Arkansas, you know, I guess it would have been the 1920s or 1930s, um, the racist Arkansas that Mayor Angelou beautifully writes about. And I think what it does, acknowledgement, it's sort of you get to acknowledge other subject positions, other, other subjects' pain, for example, Um because the opposite in Cavell is avoidance. And when you avoid, he talks about King Leah and he says that King Leah essentially ignores his daughter Cordelia, ignores her kind of a familiar, a familiar connection to him. Nothing comes of nothing famously. Um, and because Leah doesn't acknowledge his subject, his relationship to his daughter, if he gets his relationship to his subjects at large in the play as king. Um, so I think this idea of acknowledgement is, is, is crucial because, again, it reminds us that the text can open us up to the experiences of others and make us aware of the experiences of us and vice versa, of course. You know, obviously that works both ways. Um, and I think if we're, again, using political portfolios, if we're too strict on our readings, it has to be post-colonial. It has to be feminist. I think we sort of miss the acknowledgement. I think we the rich, the potential richness of the reading can we can somehow lose that because we are focused too much on one sort of hierarchical position, one political reading, and I think we can miss a lot from the text. Then um, we can avoid, to use Cavell's terminology, aspects of the text, and I think therefore acknowledgement 
is key to, you know, I, re I really believe improving us as moral agents and, and making us better world citizens. I, I strongly believe that comes from the reading process. And I think that reading process entails engagement, acknowledgement. And as I say in the text, a constant sort of reassessment of yourself as a subject and of the positions in the text, similar to read the response, that as the text go along, it goes along, it, it, it subverts our expectations, changes what we think, challenges us. And I think that's all connected with acknowledgement. So I think that's how it's very important um, in reading. You turn to the philosophical school of pragmatism and apply it to the Thai writer Kukrit Pramoja's novel, Red Bamboo. Can you give us a brief summary of that novel and uh, maybe apply some of the central tenets of pragmatism and of this uh, um, Cavell's idea of acknowledgement to Pramoja's novel? Yeah, yeah. Well, very briefly, Pramoja's novel, um... Red bamboo is a symbol for the uh, sort of northeast of Thailand. And it's about the threat of communism, which was then seen at the time, you know, post, you know, before the Vietnam War, after the Vietnam War, the connection with Korea, the spread of communism in China. There was a very powerful communist movement in Thailand. So Red Bamboo, Ku Kuit Pramoj was also prime minister in the 70s. Um and he ran a newspaper, Thai Raf. But he, so he was very political. So, the, but as much as it, it's more, it's a satire. It's more, it's a series. It's almost an episodic book, um, in that it's a series of episodes that that happen in a little village, um, and they're all about the sort of relationship to this this threat of communism or the fact that communism's coming, and the main subjects are the kind of communist leader in the village and also the head monk at the monastery. And it's kind of their relationship. So it's kind of about the relationship be between tradition and this, uh, well, I'd say new left populism, but it's really communism. And it's all about the the interactions between these characters. So there's no, like, there's not really a beginning, a middle of an, and an end, but that's the, the brief background to the book. Now, in, in terms of acknowledgement, for me anyway, what it does is... And, and and also pragmatism, um, it, it, it kind of gives us an awareness that there's no, the way I read it anyway, is that there's no real fixed, correct subject position. So when you read it, you can kind of sympathise to a degree, for example, with the communist characters and what they're talking about. But you can also sympathise with tradition, conservatism and, and the monks. And what the book does really well is open these two viewpoints up via satire and via some pretty funny comedy um, to help to make us think about these subject positions. So in terms of pragmatism, you know, the idea that we can't have an absolute certainty. One of the key tenets of pragmatism is we can't have absolute certainty Um one of the the leader of the neo pragmatists, you might say, was Richard Rorty, who was saying that we need to rethink philosophy. And in the 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 mirror of nature, the idea of the relationship between the mind and nature, something that was being searched for in traditional epistemology, was now gone. It was lost. And what Rorty does, um, he brings in Donald Davidson, who I talk 
about in the book as well. And Davidson's position is that we constantly calls it passing theory. We're constantly changing our position, our subject position in dialogue every day. We have theories about what's correct. They're linguistic, but we're constantly changing them and moving them. Um, and we never get this sort of fixed, centralised subject position to say, this is it. This is absolute certainty. So what I get from a text such, such as Red Bamboo is that there are two clearly delineated subject positions. One is much more theological stroke conservative. One is much more political communist. And there's a sort of, they sort of feed off each other. This is why I think it connects to deconstruction as well, pragmatism. They sort of feed off each other and that there's no ultimately correct final fixed point, what Rorty called an er vocabulary, a first vocabulary. We can never get to that. And Rorty's other point is that we find we realize this through literature because literature is constantly giving us different vocabularies to describe reality and to think about reality. So, applying that form of pragmatism to literary criticism, I think you can see how that in many ways connects with deconstruction um, and also pre provides great readings of a text like Red Bamboo. I mean, if, if I read it from a strictly Marxist perspective, I would probably say something like Hugrich Promage was a prime minister. Uh, he was the editor of Tyrath newspaper. Therefore, he was politically jaundiced. And we see this clearly in lots of examples in the text where he is denigrating the revolutionaries. But it's just not that simple because there are points in the text where you have sympathy for them and you're laughing at the monk as well. Um, so you just see all of these different subject positions and what I think that shows us is if I took a strictly Marxist position towards the text, I'd you know I'd come with I'd come to it with those reading glasses already, John, and I'd be like, well, you know, he's clearly denigrating this character, he's making this character look silly because of his political ideology or his political pathology. But that in itself, in my opinion, is a politically jaundiced or pathological way to read a text. And what pragmatism helps us do is think about different subject positions, different angles, and how the text opens open us, opens us up to them. And going back to what I said originally, therefore, makes us better global citizens. And in Hegelian terms, going back to Hegel, you know, Hegel talks about the dialectic. So you can also read the text as sort of dialectical, and these subject positions are part of a wider dialectical movement. They're, in a way, they're symbiotic, and they sort of rely on each other. And in some respects, there's a certain historical necessity to it. But to take one position, um, which a pragmatist wouldn't do, I think is erroneous. So the key, I think, to pragmatism, certainly in the sense I'm using it here in literary criticism, is that it opens us up to acknowledge different subject positions and that can that can only improve us as, as citizens, in my opinion, and make us better people. Am I misremembering this? But I mean, Red Bamboo is um, a text uh, assigned by state schools, right? I mean, it, it is one of those texts that it's like uh, Orwell's Animal Farm or 1984, a text that's like really part of the um, the curriculum, right? It was because. Um, it was seen as it was being what it was what happened was it was read as a manual it was it was essentially read as an anti-communist critique um 
which is why, like I said, you could take a Marxist read into it in that sense. But the reading, when you read the text itself, it's actually based on, I can't remember the name, but it's actually based on an Italian book. Um, a lot of these texts were originally plagiarized and then made anew, made fresh, or used certain archetypes that came from other texts which read Bambudas. I can't remember the name of the Italian text. But I think the key to it is reading it in a sort of pragmatic stroke deconstructive stroke davidsonian sense is that we can be aware of that but we can still get different readings of the text we can read deeper into that so even if there is an intention that again which is questionable as we both know in literary criticism whims and beardsley etc the intentional fallacy um i think we have to learn to read beyond that and say that language i mean Rorty's point and Derrida's point and Davidson's point is that language sort of has a life of its own in as well, uh, a life of its own, um, which kind of, you know, we need to explore to really understand the nuances of a text. And I think it's interesting to explore language in that way and see those contradictions, those oppositions that bubble up to the surface through language. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a long tradition, right? The a text being taken up by readers for very different purposes than the authors yeah. set out. Um, yeah, you can think of so many examples of that, John. I mean, yeah, maybe um, Dickens would be a good example. You know, yeah, someone kind of centrist. You know, but um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Dickens is a great example. I mean. If you read Take Great Expectations or Tale of Two Cities, you can certainly take a sort of a really interesting Marxist angle on it and talk about how it deals with inequality, the economics of the period, the idea of revolution and stuff, especially in the Tale of Two Cities and in Great Expectations that the, the, the prisoner, Magritte, becomes rich. There are all these sort of economic questions lurking in the background. But of course... It, it could also be used as a sort of um, an, uh, an expounding of liberalism in a way, the success of liberalism, you know, the possibilities of standing on your own two feet in the city, having a go of it. And also, as an extension of that, sociologically, it, it, it can be seen as very promotional of the, of the family, the family unit as being the best way um, to get through life, which I, I tend to agree with anyway, but my point is that you can you can take various political readings with it. If you look at Hegel himself, his his famous the the philosophy of right of eighteen twenty one, then you can certainly read the philosophy of right in either a, kind of almost a neoliberalism way or certainly a liberal way, but also quite a left wing way as well. And that's why after Hegel you had the new Hegelians and you had right wing and left wing Hegelians. So. I think down history, and that's one of the points I'm trying to raise in the book, it's a difficult point, but I'm trying to raise the fact that there are all of these different vocabularies that are connected to historical sectionality and historical scenes, but that we can read them and reread them in different ways. And again, and I think the philosophy of right is a fantastic example of that in philosophy as well, because it's, you know, it's almost used as a Bible by certain philosophers and political theorists on the right, and likewise, people on the left have used it as well. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you can think of many examples as well of texts, you know, that have been used for political purposes throughout the years. 
and and it's not always what the author intended. And anyway, when we talk about intention, as I said, when we're into literary criticism, certainly the way I see it, we're kind of looking at the language itself and how the language works and how that beauty, how that aura, to use Benjamin, is is preserved or is presented in the language itself. I like to talk to guests about their writing practice. Um, how do you put together academic prose? Um, who are some of the academic writers who you admire, uh, possibly emulate? Uh-huh. Um, so number one for me, um, when this book was first reviewed, because when it goes through publishers, I have two reviewers as well. One of the reviewers made the comment that it's it's at times it's almost colloquial. It's very, you know, it's almost at times non-academic. And that's one of the things I'm trying to do in terms of styles, I think to release oneself from the, the shackles of academia is quite liberating. So one of the people I admire is Toby Eagleton, because Eagleton's a great writer. But he's very, very witty. Um, and he's he knows, obviously, his academic stuff, but he can also engage the reader, and, and he can just make you laugh. So I like I like Dickens. I, I mean, I like Dickens. Sorry, Eagleton. I like Dickens as well. Uh, Christopher Hitchens is interesting. I've been reading more of him recently. And while I don't agree with all of Hitchens' polemics, I think as a writer, he's in a as a with his use of rhetoric's fantastic. So I'm very interested in writing for its own sake, whatever the point is you're trying to make. Um, so I would say Eelton's a big one. I'm definitely interested by or influenced by people like Paul Demand. Uh, the only issue with someone like Demand is it, it become it can be quite difficult to read, and you know, I, sometimes you want to try to simplify it as much as you can. So although it doesn't influence there because of his use of rhetoric, his interrogation of rhetoric, his ideas on the relationship between literature and philosophy, um, I try to, not always successfully, to simplify it a bit more from what you might call Demanese prose. Uh, it's not always easy to do because, of course, writing on deconstruction, I wrote a whole chapter on deconstruction, trying to keep it simple, but it ends up, it just gets, when you follow the threads, if you like, it can be quite difficult. Other writers who've influenced me, uh, Stanley Cavell as well is interesting because he writes, he's a great philosopher, but he brings in lots of different things. For example, he talks quite a lot about cinema and movies. Um, and I find that very interesting as well because it opens the subject up. So I would probably say Cavell, Eagleton, more recently, maybe Hitchens. Um, and I've actually got a friend here who I've been working with, uh, Patrick Keeney. He's not here right now, but he's been quite an influence because we've been talking about writing styles and he's edited some of my work. And I've learned stuff from Patrick about trying to write in a more concise way, thinking about your sentences, don't lose your subject in the sentence and don't use unnecessary jargon. And it's a real challenge. You know, it's really hard to do that because when you're talking about these subjects, pragmatism, phenomenology, post-structuralism and literary criticism, I make this point in the book anyway. I say, yeah, there is a sort of specialist jargon involved with them and you can't help use it. I mean, if I... If I've got a gardener working in my garden and he's using different tools and I didn't understand what they were or what the word meant, I wouldn't say, right, pack up your tools and leave. I'd probably try and find out what the tools were and how they were used. But it seems with things like literary criticism, 
There's this automatic, oh my God, it, these words are difficult and they're unnecessary bricolage. Why use that? But if you take the trouble to understand the way these tools are used, they can actually be very useful. So, yeah, I, I'm personally, I'm trying to write in a style which is uh, less academic and more, you know, more, I don't know, more engaging to the common reader, really, the layman. So almost like you're speaking conversationally and directly. So, for example, I might say, my dear reader, in a second person, because I like to try and make that informality, if you know what I mean. So Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we're getting back to that, that uh, keyword pleasure, you know, the pleasure of literature. Because I do think um, academic writers can um, even be suspicious of pleasurable academic writing. Like there's something, we're smuggling something in when there's a, a, a kind of looseness to the prose or there's a, um, something. It, and, and it's not an anti-jargon uh, sort of polemical point that I'm making, but um, almost there's a kind of ethics of pleasure um, that uh, that gets tied up in the way academics evaluate. Uh, yeah, so yeah, absolutely. I, I, I recently wrote a piece um, called The Metonymic Left. I, I mentioned it too briefly about the left and the right and the position of the left and right and the vocabulary that's used now to talk about the left and right. And when it was peer reviewed, uh, one of the things, you know, one of the reviews was, you know, it needs to be more academic, there needs to be more citation, you need to add that. And I tried to, it was an invited piece. And I tried to, when I talked to the editor, I kind of made the point that I'm, I really like the idea of writing, you know, the, the essay format. There's a really good book by Brian Dillon called Essayism, where he talks brilliantly, you know, about the different sides. It's a yeah. wonderful, it's a wonderful book. And yeah, I, I like the idea of, the, you know, the essay, you can still be erudite and you can be academic, but without being pitched by the springs of, of, of a footnote for everything that you're, you're kind of entertaining. I suppose often you assume a certain amount of familiarity with the reader. And, of course, that's a different when you're trying to write non-academically, that you're kind of wondering how much, where do you overstep the line between the familiarity of the reader with the with the subject at hand, where are you patronising them or where do you need to add in extra stuff? But I'm a real, really interested in the idea of writing more in the essay form, which is why I've been attracted to Hitchens. And of course, if you go back in history, you've got so many great Francis Bacon, um, Montaigne. I really, I, I think a resurgence of essayism would be very interesting. And that's the kind of writing I'd like to lean back towards. There's a really wonderful writer called Sarah Bakewell. If you know her, she's and she writes in a really great style and approaches all of these sometimes difficult subjects. I do like Montaigne and existentialism, but in a really accessible way. And I'd ultimately write, like to be able to write in that fashion. And like you say, going back to my paper on was Marx, Hegel, and the New Left and the Metonymic Left. One of the critiques was it needed to have more references and be more academic. And while I did get that, and then another critic, another reviewer said, well, I understand what you're trying to do. And I think we should lean towards this more essay writing style. So, you know, you're always, I, I always use a metaphor that we, when we write like this, we're tightrope walking and we're always trying to keep the balance and we don't want to fall off either side. 
and that's just a skill in itself for sure <clears throat> i'd like to return to teaching um how, how do you approach teaching literary theory at the undergraduate level um also in the esl classroom um how do you capture the variety and complexity of theory uh what are some of your strategies that is tough um as you've just said the esl classroom context one of my strategies is to well, number one, it just depends on your skill as a teacher. When you get these difficult subjects, you have to try and make them relevant to the culture at hand. So let me give you an example. Um, when I was teaching structuralism, and obviously I'd start with Ferdinand de Saussure and semiotics and stuff, the signifying and signified. And what I would do is I would, I would, I would put it in the context of Thai culture. So for example, if I talk about the Langway and parole, I'd say to my students, there's a parole of the CMU uniform, the white shirt, the black skirt or black trousers. And that's the, lang the, 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 the parole, the individual utterance. And the Langway is your whole wardrobe. It's what you've got everything to choose from. Or I'd say if you're going out on a Saturday, you know, people say your clothes say something about you. I'll say, well, of course, because it's an individual parole. It's an utterance. And what the, the, the signs you put together say something about you. And that's what you say about yourself, your parole. And Langway as a whole is all of your wardrobe. And another example I would give is, uh, I talk about the signifier, signified and the difference. And I would use example, because then you've lived in Thailand, John, so you'll know that when it comes to traffic lights here, they're read in a different, very different way from what they are in the West. And I would make a joke with my students that red means stop. In, in England, orange means get ready, green means go. Um, and I'd say over here, you have to say red means you can keep going for five more seconds and orange means something else. But my point, of course, was that red means something when it's next to the orange light and the orange means something when it's next to the green light. And that all, you know, it gives it meaning as a science system. So that's one way to do it is to make it culturally relevant um, and I bring some of that up in the book when I talk about Thai soaps. Um, that's probably my biggest uh, key in my arsenal. Uh, and the only other way is to find texts that are really engaging to give examples. So I would use, I used Hemingway's short story uh, from the connection Men Without Women, Hills Like White Elephants. Um, and I use that for reader response because of Hemingway's iceberg method. So one of the things I would do is pick a text that sat very, very well with the theory I was trying to communicate. And I found that Hills Like White Elephants, which is dialogical. I mentioned it in the book as well, actually, because it's dialogical. It's, it's made up of speech, essentially. But it's great for students because you're saying what's under the surface. What are they not saying? And then at the end, you make it fun. Because I used to say to the students at the end, I'd say, right, get into groups and write another paragraph about what happens at the end they loved it so things like that were great as well so i think the key is finding cultural context um such as the danger of stop the truck tied traffic lights uh using things like say langway and parole talking about individual utterance and your wardrobe or music i would talk about dance music and how a dj uses various signs as well um and just picking the right text, John, so picking something that isn't too hard and, you know, can be accessible from different cultural vantages. 
And people like Hemingway are great for that because even though there's complexities to Hemingway, a lot of it's under the surface. So it works very well with reader response. And then, of course, when you're teaching post-colonial theory, there were just some texts that were just very good, like the a great name for the book as well, The Empire Writes Back, uh, which is a great collection of essays. And it's just pretty easy to teach. So I would take wider essays from, say, that book, and I would just break them up, or Homi K. Baba, and just take out sections of Baba, for example, and then literally put my own sort of gloss on it underneath and go through the students that way. And then the other key to it would be to just offer lots of office hours so that you're available for your students. And even though it was very difficult, it's the hardest subject I've ever had to teach, given the, the, the EFL context. But it's also the most rewarding because that's really what led to this book in many ways. So, yeah, there are a, a few different ways of doing it. Yeah, I, I like how the emphasis you're putting on context-specific teaching, you know, like teaching any subject isn't um, something you can apply as like a universal prepackaged sort of set. You have to consider um, where, you know, the situation students are coming from, their priorities, I'll give you another example of that, John, briefly. When I was teaching feminism, this is this was very interesting. Um, we were talking about, at the time, we were talking about third-wave feminism and stuff. Um, and I think we are talking about Spivak and also well, Spivak, Spivak, and also Chantry. And what came up was fascinating to me was that a number of the girls in the class said, well, you know, we might be part of that double-voiced discourse or the unvoiced. They said, but what about if we're happy doing that? What about if our culture embraces this, what Western feminists are talking about as the patriarchy? And yet we're, we're kind of happy with that. And I was like, yeah, I mean, and it, 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 yeah, because I'm thinking, yeah, this is revolutionary. This is great. This and so on. And then they kind of stopped me in my tracks. And they're like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you kind of make sure where that, you, of course, a lot of it, and I make this point in the book as well towards the end, is from a Western perspective, a Western angle. Um, and sometimes we forget that. So what that, what that taught me uh, was not to generalise and to remember that there was just always this different cultural angle. I mean, one of the things I say to my students is you always get these new types of criticism coming through, you know, post-humanism, queer theory. Uh, and I said, what about Buddhist theory? And I said, you know, maybe the next great theory is going to be a Buddhist approach to text. And what does that tell you about reality when you're reading the text? Um, so I think it's always, we've always got to be open to new ways of reading. It's just like I said, don't, without delimiting ourselves to, to one specific way of reading text and to constantly remember the pleasure of the text and that we should be primarily enjoying it so so now that this book uh, has been published what is the next project you're turning your attention to okay so the next thing i'm looking at doing i've already started it actually is i'm looking at going back to roland bath and agency um and the agency of the author and formalism i'm looking at chat gpt and what I'm looking at now, the next project, is on how chat GPT uh, affects our notion of value and literary value and affects our notion of authorial agency. 
And this also applies to uh, to new criticism, really. The idea that if it's just the text on the page that's important, it doesn't matter if it's Shakespeare or if it's ChatGPT that, that provided it. So I'm hoping to get a book out of this, but I've just started the provisional first chapter. Uh, I've been working with a colleague on this as well, so I want to do a few things with ChatGPT and artificial intelligence. One is hopefully in the future to come together to some to write a number of essays, essentially, in the first instance. Uh, part, part of it with a colleague of mine who I have to credit with the idea as well. Um, and then to maybe expand it into a book into the future. But yeah, artificial intelligence and, and literature is pretty much where I'm looking right now. Are you following the uh, the union strike in uh, in Hollywood? I don't even know if it's been settled yet. But one of the, uh, the I followed of, a bit of it. Yeah, just tell me what it is. Remind I me. Mean, I mean, they're uh, what is at stake is like rights for streaming and profit sharing and stuff like that with writers um, and production companies. But the the reason it it struck a chord what you just said was um, apparently some of the studios are incorporating AI into the writing and production of TV shows. And the writers, of course, are kind of resisting because in part um, AI-generated content is being cribbed from other sources that are not being compensated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's... it would be very because it does connect with what I'm talking about. Yeah, because they're also talking screenplays and teleplays. Um, that that in the future, a lot of teleplays. Yeah, like you said, they won't employ writers. They will just put it into an artificial. It doesn't have to be Chat GPT. It could be Sparrow uh, or any of the others. A lancer. But what they would do, or lancer, sorry, what they do is literally key in a rubric. Hit go and say, I need this and. You can see how that would work because if you look at, for example, if we go back to structuralism and archetypes that we find in soap programs, for example, you, the, the formula is repeated, isn't it? So if you've got the formula in the way of algorithms and the AI has got enough sort of syntactic um, dynamicism, if you like, in order to, to produce that, you can put that rubric in. So I want something in this style of a teleplay and just let it print it out. I, 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 I see that as being the future of a lot of teleplays, especially with the Thai ones I see here and the British ones because they just follow such a formula. To be well, honest, and, and I mean American Hollywood blockbusters do this to you know where insert joke, you know, will hire someone to insert a joke, you know, during this lull and attack. And and the question I like and, and, and what I'd like to explore in relation to that is how it affects value. Like, you know, going back to Roland Barth in a way in the death of an author, what how much value is added when you put when you attach a name to it? Um I mean this was done hundreds of years ago with Arm What? Uh my sort Duchamp and the idea of art and putting a name on a work of art or putting it in a gallery and how that affects our perception or defamiliarizes our perception of something. So, but in the context of AI, it's very, very interesting. It's just so new. Um, and I genuinely do see, I, I I had heard about the Hollywood strikes, but I didn't know the exact details. But what you've just said makes perfect sense, given what I'm talking about. So that's kind of what I'm interested in right now. And I, I'm going to see how much I can get out of that.
but I'm just at the very sort of the contextual research. And of course, doing something like this, you have to be careful of the criticism. What does he know about AI? Because obviously I'm not an engineer or a technician, so you have to be careful. You don't fall into that trap of someone, of someone going, well, what do you understand about AI? So you have to get the balance and say, well, I'm trying to make a philosophical point and a point about language and semiotics rather than about the, the engineering or the technical side of AI. So it's an interesting project, but and, and right maybe, now I'm enjoying it. Yeah, may, maybe a future uh, extra chapter in, in your book would be AI's influence on literary criticism, because I'm, I'm told students are turning in, you know, chat GPT essays in English literature classes already, you know. Not only English literature, John, they're turning, they're actually, it's, it's past law exams and everything. So, I mean, it really is, it's, it's absolutely across the board. I mean, what would be interesting would be to add another chapter written by ChatGPT. <laughs> that the would book. be something. That would you know, be about or... ChatGPT. That would be, you know, Roman Bart would have, have a field day with that one. I think he would. And in a way, of course, it's kind of, yeah, I mean, or say, right, one of these chapters is written by ChatGPT. Do you guys work out which? Yeah, that's There's awesome. a number of possibilities, actually, that could be done. We'd actually be quite interested. That's Who awesome. Knows? Well, um, thank you for coming on the pod, Wayne. Okay, John, I've enjoyed it immensely. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you.